Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We wanted to let you know that Olin's first book, What to Do with Worry, is now available on Audible. You can also purchase physical copies where Christian books are sold. Now, here's Olin. Have your Bibles, Mark chapter 1. I'll pray. Father, bless the teaching. Bless the hearing, bless the receiving, bless the understanding, bless the application. May all of us who are hearing this, myself included, be better, more effective disciple makers for your name, for your fame, for the sake of all the elect around the earth. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. We're going to talk about the idea that we talked about a little bit during the Q&A of increasing commitment and discipleship. So... A couple of quotes to get us started. There was a book written just a couple of years ago called Deep Discipleship by J.T. English. That's a, he was on staff, I think, at the Village Church with Matt Chandler in Dallas, and maybe he teaches seminary now. But he said, progressively challenging discipleship. Disciples take next step, not to graduate from a process, but to enjoy more of God. Knowing how to raise the bar, whom to raise the bar for, and when to raise the bar are essential elements of discipleship in the local church. You don't want maturing believers to have to stay in shallow waters when they're ready to go deeper. If the local church isn't calling people to press forward, to grow, to strain ahead, we will lose them. And that's true of college ministry as well. And then this is Robert Coleman from the Master Plan of Evangelism, which is my favorite book on discipleship, which is really interesting. I mean, when you think about it at first, like, Maybe one of the best books on discipleship ever is called The Master Plan of Evangelism. But if you think about what discipleship is supposed to be, is reaching the third generation evangelistically, it makes perfect sense. The, the best way to do evangelism is through discipleship. As the company of followers around Jesus increased, it became necessary by the middle of his second year of ministry to narrow the select company to a more manageable number. Accordingly, we must acknowledge that there was a rapidly diminishing priority given to those outside the twelve. Before the world could be permanently helped, people would have to be raised up who could lead the multitudes in the things of God. The multitudes of bewildered souls were potentially ready to follow Him, but Jesus individually could not possibly have given them the personal care that they needed. So, John chapter 1 through John 4, he's had a D group of five to six people. Okay. Uh, John MacArthur speculates that a lot of these men, maybe all of them were fishermen, so they were able to kind of take a seasonal sabbatical from fishing because it's a seasonal type job. John the Baptist is famous preachers preaching. There's a revival. Let's leave. Let's go. They meet Jesus. They follow Jesus around relationally as long as they can. At some point, they go back to their work. Okay. Um, there's a danger in our discipleship if we're not increasing the challenge. And again, this, this is not like I'm, I'm trying to make them, you know, climb a ladder for Jesus. I, I like the way that J.T. English says it. It's about enjoying God more openly. It's about just taking them deeper in the faith. It's about turning them into a leader for God's church. Um, then there's the potential to lose people, for them to drop out, for them to get bored. And you don't want that to happen. So I'm going to use the three E's, establish, equip, and export, that we like to use. But I would say this. I have never, and I still don't. I'm going to use them. They're good mental pegs to hang your hat on to kind of talk about different stages. But I wouldn't get like caught up in, is this an establishing group or is this an equipping group? 
or you know, uh oh, this guy's in the establishing season, this guy's equipping. It's like, listen, if, if you can properly delineate that all the time, great. You're a better man than I am, better woman than I am. But I'm using these in very broad, loose categories. Does that make sense there? So, Mark chapter 1, let's start in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So again, just not only do we have two sets of brothers, four fishermen, they were fishing almost next door to each other. Some, they may have even been in business together. There's an affinity group. But this passage always for years struck me as strange because the way it reads when you just read the Gospel of Mark is like Jesus just walked on the scene one day and said, Hey guys, follow me. They said, Okay, we'll leave everything. And it's like, well, this is just some kind of supernatural thing. I, I'm not going to be able to just walk on the campus and say, Hey, follow me. And people are like, Great, I'll leave everything to follow you. Mark is the shortest gospel. He starts, really, just with the baptism of Jesus. Just gives us the ministry. Matthew and Luke, as far as the ministry of Jesus, give us a lot of the same stuff. John writes his gospel 30-plus years later, and it's like he decided to fill in some of the details that got left out. And he goes back and says, let me tell you about the first time I met Jesus. Do you remember, I don't know if you remember this from John chapter 1, it says, it was about the 10th hour. Which that's John saying, I can tell you the exact time first got to talk to Jesus. I still remember it. 60 years later, changed my life. And so, there were these relational months that they'd just been hanging out. But now, it comes to more of an official appointment. This is an official discipleship group. We were just kind of hanging out. It was all kinds of life on life. And now, I really want you to follow me. And people that were very devout in the faith sometimes would go to rabbis if they wanted to be trained to be a rabbi. And they would say, Rabbi, I'd like to be a part of your group. But Jesus proactively goes, calls them, and they decide to follow him. I mean, the application for this point are pretty easy, right? We're, we're inviting people. We're challenging them. I want you to go to Beach Project. I want you to come to this Bible study. I want you to be in this investigative study. And then it's like, I'm starting a discipleship group, and I want you to be a part of it. Notice, he uses language they can understand. They were fishermen. I want you to be fishers of men. I remember when I first started this fraternity, uh, Bible study and discipleship group. Two of the guys that were brand new Christians, they came to me and they said, we want you to teach us to rush people for Jesus. And I remember thinking, I don't like that language. That's kind of weird. That's kind of cheesy. But what were they doing? They were speaking their language. That's what they did. They were all about rushing guys to be in their fraternity. And they realized, they're like, dude, you rushed us for Jesus. And I'm like, I wouldn't say it that way, right? But they're like, teach us how to do this. Put it in their language. Even John Calvin said, Really what the Bible is, it's like baby talk for God. It's like Him getting down on His hands and knees and speaking to us in a way we can understand. So the more we can speak in a way that people can understand, the better. I had one guy I was discipling, and he's like, man, I just, when I'm really struggling with my faith, I don't even know what to pray. I said, what about this? What if I wrote out, I feel like I know enough about your kind of normal life situation now. What if I wrote out a prayer for you based on Scripture and I gave it to you. Take a picture because you probably lose it. Take a picture of it. And then when you don't have to pray, just read through this prayer. He's like, okay. I mean, what was I doing? I was trying to take biblical truth, put it in his language, get on his level. So we want to start 
where they're still kind of young in their faith, but we're trying to pull them up to a place of maturity. Here's John MacArthur. I'd say a mature Christian is a Christian who is self-motivated. In other words, he is outside the necessity of being cranked up by somebody else. He is enough plugged into the power of the relationship to Christ apart from anybody else having to be superficially motivating him. Do you have people in your discipleship group that you're like, if I wasn't texting this guy every time and reminding him to show up for the meeting, I don't know if he'd come. We got an early morning prayer group, and I call him and I wake him up. And but then you have other people. It's like, man, they just they own it. They're passionate. They're all in. I never have to remind her. She's there before I am. Maturity. That's where we're taking people. So second step: equipping, an establishing group, establishing them in the basics, then moving to an equipping group. Chapter three, start in verse thirteen. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name, which means son of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon uh, and then Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, just we're going to come back and compare this list in a minute. But here's what I want us to notice right now. Mark chapter 3, verse 14 is one... Maybe it's my favorite New Testament verse on discipleship. Here it is. They might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. What's the method? Just spend time with me. And what's the goal? Go out and preach. And don't think of preaching too much of a technical. It doesn't have to be standing up front in front of a group with a podium. If you're one-on-one in Starbucks across the table talking about Christ, that is a form of preaching. You're proclaiming God's Word. Now this is right before he's about to send them out two by two to preach, to heal, to cast out demons. And this is more like he's starting to ordain them for ministry. And we can say, but all the people I'm discipling, they're not going to be full-time ministers. I know. But we do want them to be leaders in the church. I mean, I think one of the best things that Campus Outreach can do is we're raising up lay people, men and women, that will be lay leaders in the church one day. And so I'm, I'm trying to prepare them for ministry. Mark shows us that if you study Mark and kind of compare, Jesus spent, if you say all the time Jesus spent with just the 12, to all the time Jesus seemed to spend with the crowds and the masses and everybody else, he spent about three times more with just the 12. Campus outreach, remember, remember the vision statement of campus outreach, building labors on the campus for the lost world. And we've all tweaked it a little bit. Building labors for the glory of God. Or, okay, but building labors on the campus for the lost world. Right? It's not reaching every student. And we do want to reach as many people as possible. But we're trying to build the leaders that will eventually reach everybody. Listen to Matthew Henry. The apostles were prepared for their work by accompanying Christ all the time that he went in and out among them. There is no learning comparable to that which is got by following Christ. Joshua, by ministering to Moses, is fitted to be his successor. He had called them sometime before to be his disciples, his immediate followers, and his constant attendants. So the idea is the best thing is just life on life, more is called and taught, hanging out. Um, flip over to Acts chapter 1. This is after Judas's gone. Jesus has ascended and they're trying to pick the new apostle. 
And notice the requirement, Acts chapter 1, starting verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanying us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So there, was, there were other kind of fringe people hanging around the sides. But that was the key. Did you spend time with Jesus? How much time did you get with Jesus? Remember, what were Peter and James, excuse me, Peter and John noticed for after Jesus' ascension by the Pharisees? They're unlearned men, but they've been with Jesus. That was the key to their power. So, at this point, we're going to move to exporting. Okay. And what I want you to see is, even in Jesus' group, there was a sense in which he kept upping the ante. So flip over to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Now this is the uh, report of the same event. Okay, But there's just a couple of different things for us to notice here. So in Jesus, hey, let's hang out. Come be in my discipleship group. Come follow me. And then it's, I want to appoint you to be apostles. Luke chapter 6, skip down to verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, if you're ever like, listen, this is a good problem to have. If you're like, I used the example earlier, there's 12 hungry students in my target group, and I only have capacity to disciple eight. Number one, praise God. What a great problem to have. Because I know a lot of people like, I got a capacity to disciple six, and I can only find one and a half who really is hungry. I'd rather have too many. What do you do? How do you discern? The main thing, pray. Jesus prayed all night. You don't have to pray all night. Right? You're not Jesus. But you can pray an hour, maybe. God, give me wisdom. Who to choose? And then, and we've been talking about this in the Q&A, so this is good. Y'all are, y'all are dealing with the right kind of problems. You give some more leadership responsibility. Now, I want us to do a little experiment here together. Um, we've looked at multiple lists of the apostles, Right? So keep your finger, if you can, in Luke. And then you go back to the list we looked at in Mark 3. So you're going to have to be ambidextrous for his. Okay, One finger in Mark 3, another in Luke 6, and then, uh-oh, Acts chapter 1. We're getting crazy. Three different pages. And here's what I want you all to do. We're going to kind of have a group discussion here for a second. Compare the three lists because they're not exactly the same. What difference do you notice, okay? And what similarities do you notice between Mark 3, Acts 1, and then Luke 6? Some are big and obvious, some are more small. What are are some of the obvious similarities you see in the list? This is the crowd participation part. Question? Okay. I may reword it. All right, all right. In in Mark chapter three, in Luke chapter six, and in Acts chapter one, you get a list of the apostles, right? 
compare the three lists and, and what's the same and what's different in the three lists. Stand here in awkward silence. Anybody know anything that's the same? That's that's some of the easier stuff. Uh, What's that? Okay, they're on they're on a mountain. That's good. That's interesting. That's I was not noticing that, but that's good. On a mountain top. What's that? Who who's the first in all three lists? Okay, Simon Peter. Now. Almost certainly. That was because he was the leader. Acts chapter 1, he stands up and decides, hey, we're going to appoint a new apostle. Acts chapter 2, all the apostles preached, but whose sermon do we remember? Peter was the undisputed leader of the disciples. Part of that was probably he was the oldest of the disciples. Okay? But Peter was the leader. Who's last in all the list? Judas, except the Acts chapter 1 list because he's dead. Okay? Obvious why he's last, because he was not the leader, and he was going to be bad. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. The order of the names is different. But here's what you notice. The first four are always Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Peter's always first, but the order of the other three is different. Makes sense? The fifth one is always Philip. And the next three names are always the same, but the order might be jumbled again. Here's our best understanding. And then James, the Alphaeus, I think is... And, and some, some of them have different names. You know, they were called different things. But most likely what Jesus had is He actually had, within the group of twelve, three groups, three smaller groups of four. And, and the first would have been Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now, there's at least one time where we see those four people with Jesus. They're asking him questions about the end times in the temple. But there's a group, even within four of the three, who are the three that got most of Jesus' time? There's multiple times where we see Peter, John, and James. Hey, I'm about to go raise this little dead girl. And we don't know, is it like, all y'all can't handle this? Or it's just a tiny house, and so we can't take the whole band of merry men in here? But there were multiple times, Garden of Gethsemane, I want you three to stay awake with me. They were closer. And after Acts chapter 1, we hear about Peter again. We hear about John again. We hear about James the Apostle again. In the Bible, when do we hear about the other nine apostles again? Never. Their name is never mentioned again in the entire rest of the Bible. Now, I'll come back to that in a minute, but what was Jesus doing? He was preparing Peter, James, and John to be the leaders of the New Testament church. It's not wrong to notice gifting in some, passion in some, whatever, and, and give extra to some. Again, what if somebody gets their feelings hurt? Is there a jerk way to do it? Yes, don't be a jerk for Jesus. Don't need any jerks for Jesus. There's also a gracious way to do it. Well, how do you know? Because Jesus did it. Good enough for Jesus, good enough for me. I don't ever want to try to be more spiritual than Jesus. 
have the third generation in view. That's what he was calling them to. Spend time with me. We're just hanging out, guys. Come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. You know what now? I want to appoint you guys to be apostles. I'm going to send you out two by two to preach. And what am I really doing? I'm preparing you guys to leave when I'm long gone. This is definitely true in college ministry because most of the people you're discipling, they're not coming on staff with campus outreach. And even if they do come on staff with campus outreach, they might not be on your campus with you. You've got to prepare them for life after you. I mean, what am I trying to do? One of my sons rolls off the payroll this year. Thank you, Lord. I'm so excited about that. But, but what have I been trying to do for the last 22 years with him? And what are, you know, Luke said y'all have a three-year-old, right? Or the, your two-year-old, the youngest. What are you trying to do? You're trying to prepare 20 years from now. He's independent. He's not tethered to me anymore. He's a grown man. She's a grown woman. They can lead themselves. And that doesn't mean they're radically independent, but they're mature enough to know what they need and they go get it in the church or wherever. So prayerfully select leaders and prayerfully think about how to increase and deepen the commitment. I've already given some of those examples during the Q&A times. But the first time you challenge a group of freshmen, maybe to... It's like, hey, I just, I just want y'all to show up once a week. That's all I'm asking. Show up once a week for an hour and stay awake. Low bar. And the next semester might be, we're going to read this book together. And I want you to show up every week and have your chapter in the book read. Right? Third year. I want you to show up every week, have read your book, and have done a Bible study. And I want you to commit to this extra prayer time that we're going to have for student leaders on the campus. And then senior years, maybe like, hey, all that plus... If you're going to be in my discipleship group, you got to help me start an evangelist Bible study on your dorm floor, in your apartment complex, whatever. You're, you're gradually, gently, and yet really increasing the commitment, increasing the challenge. Be sensitive, be gentle, be wise, be prudent, but don't be overly worried if somebody gets their feelings hurt because they're not given a leadership opportunity. When I was still a student leader at Sanford, I was discipling a guy, and he was hungry, and he was growing. Um, but he, he didn't go to Beach Project, I guess, until maybe his junior year. And it's one of those things where he was a little older, a little more mature. We were kind of on the fence, should he be a discipleship room leader on the Beach Project? And ended up saying no. And then about halfway through the summer, when he realized there were other people in a very similar life stage and position to him that got to be a discipleship leader. He was kind of hurt. He was upset. And like, man, why didn't I get the opportunity? And we had a good enough relationship. I was like, man, you, you do struggle with insecurity a lot. And you, you, you sometimes almost struggle with some very mild but almost depression. Like you have a bad day, you don't get out of bed the next morning. I love you. You, you can't be in a leadership role if you're just not going to show up one day because you, you had a bad day. And the good thing is he's like, okay, I get it. I don't like it. I don't even know if I agree with it, but I get it. I appreciate it. And this guy today... Super godly, elder in his church, gives a lot of money, shares his faith. I mean, if, if you do it in a gentle, godly way, even if somebody doesn't like it, it sometimes it can be used to challenge them to grow up. Now, if we are too worried about feelings, I don't know if I, I the whole idea of having a more mature group and a less mature group, like what if... I would just ask you, why does that bother you so much? Why are you so hesitant? 
Why is there maybe even something in your heart that every time I've given an example like that, Maybe, maybe you've been hurt in your life, and I want to be sensitive to that, right? But it might be that a big goal in your heart for why you're doing ministry is in a sense for the feelings of other people, right? I just want them to feel loved, and I want them to feel cared for, and I want it all to be warm and fuzzy. And it's good when people feel loved, but we've got to be able to speak the truth in love, and eventually, part of the goal is, we're not out there just making friends. Hopefully, we are making friends. I'm friends with a lot of people I've discipled, but eventually, it's to kick them out of the nest. Again, in the most loving, gentle, kick them out of the nest way, but it's like, fly away, little birdie. Be the mature bird you're supposed to be. More likely, a lot of times, what is it about is like, and guys, this is a danger for all of us. There's a real danger to being in full-time ministry and it's some type of self-validation. I'm doing it for my own feelings. I want people to like me. I want people to respect me. I want people to think well of me. I want people out there talking about me, saying wonderful things and posting Instagram posts about how wonderful of a person I am and how I changed their life. I'm just telling you, be real careful of that. Because if that's what you're really after, it will be incredibly hard for you to ever challenge somebody in love. It's a great story. You know, I, I mentioned the guy, Shane, who was the campus director on my campus when I was first getting involved in campus outreach. And he had a younger brother in high school, not a Christian, but would have claimed to be a Christian. And so when Shane first became a Christian in college, Shane would go home and try to talk to his younger brother about Christ. And his younger brother was like, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. I believe all that. And Shane was like, well, I don't think you're a Christian because nothing in your life seems like you're a Christian. In fact, you're dating this girl that's not a Christian, and I know y'all are messing around and all this. And he kind of went, and, and finally the younger brother was like, hey, man, I love this girl. We're going to get married, and we've always had a good relationship, me and you, but if you don't shut up talking to me about Jesus and my girlfriend, we're not going to be friends anymore. Shane tried to be wise and prudent, but he felt like, I think my brother's lost and going to hell. So he kept trying to find ways to say stuff, and finally the younger brother was like, we're done. I'm not speaking to you anymore. And I think it was really awkward for a while, like being Thanksgiving. There's only two of them, you know, like mom, dad, two brothers that aren't talking to each other. Later, younger brother goes to college, comes to Christ. And he went back to his oldest brother and he said, man, and these guys are both very relational, very warm. How, how were you able to keep coming after me in love with the gospel, even when I was kind of doing everything I could to stiff arm you? Basically, sound cut. And he's older brother, I love this. He said, I loved you enough to lose you. I loved you enough in the long run to lose you in the short run. I wasn't just about your personal affection and relation for me, I was about what's best for you for eternity. And now his younger brother has been on staff for about 20 years. I was talking to Luke. How many of y'all have read the book by Jim Collins? It's not a Christian book, it's a business book called Good to Great but it has some incredible just life principles that apply in ministry life. But he has one in there where he talks about the level five leaders. You know, he's looking at all these companies that are just like super profitable. And he came up with this terminology, I think, called a level five leader. And here's the way he defined a level five leader is somebody that's like uber passionate and zealous that their business or their ministry or whatever would thrive and succeed. 
But when it comes to getting credit, they just, they totally don't care. Almost like shy, introverted, I don't want any of the credit. But when it comes to the movement, I'm like, I'll do anything to see the movement succeed. But when it's like personal popularity and success, I, I don't care about any of that. In some sense, the greatest level five leader of all time was Lord Jesus Christ. Like, utterly humble. I'm literally willing not just to lose people, not just to lose friends. I'm willing to lose my father, his smile, his blessing for the sake of these people. I'm so zealously committed to the mission. And we will be better disciple makers when we have that sound. I'm committed to Jesus and his glory and his fame and his movement and his church and not building my own little kingdom. I mean, it, last thing to notice in these lists, Judas was there. Judas is one of them. And Jesus knew. He said it in John 6. I chose the 12 myself and yet one of you is the devil. And there's no indication that Jesus ever treated Judas different. He washed his feet knowing this guy's going to betray me. We're going to get hurt. We're going to hurt people sometimes, even when we have the best intentions. But if we really say this is ultimately about the glory of Jesus and I'm living for an audience of one, I'm not living for the praise and accolades of humans. When it comes, yes, it's nice. Enjoy it. But don't get addicted to it, right? Father, Who is sufficient for these things? We need more sanctification. We need you to humble us. We need you to make us care less about what people think about us. And we need you to make us care more about what people think about you. And I pray we'd live that way. And you'd bless us with fruit for your glory and for our joy. And for the sake of the nations, I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.